have your Bibles and turn to Matthew chapter 18. Matthew 18. We're working our way through the parables of Jesus in Matthew, uh, zeroing in on Matthew's parables in, in the morning. We're looking at Luke's parables in the evening, uh, when weather permits us to do. And um, uh, what we've been doing in chapter 18 is, is it's driven by a metaphor. I, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't say it's a parable, but with that metaphor comes parables. We'll see one of those parables here this morning. We'll see uh, other uh, parables later. But Matthew chapter 18, uh, we, we want to look at verses 5 to 14, and it's in your pew Bibles on page 867. So with that, if you will, stand with me out of reverence for God's holy word. The evangelist Matthew writes on their inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and to be drowned in the depth of the sea. Woe to the world for temptations to sin. For it is necessary that temptations come, but woe to the one by whom the temptation comes. And if your hand or your foot causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life crippled or lame than with two hands or two feet to be thrown into the eternal fire. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into the hell of fire. See that you do not despise one of these little ones. For I tell you that in heaven, their angels always see the face of my Father who is in heaven. What do you think? If a man has a hundred sheep and one of them has gone astray, does he not leave the ninety-nine on the mountains and go in search of the one that went astray? If he finds it, truly, I say to you, he rejoices over it more than, uh, than, more than over the ninety-nine that never went astray. So it is not the will of my Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. Let's go Lord in prayer. Father, thank you, as always, for your love and your mercy. But, Lord, we ask you to open our hearts and our minds and our eyes and our ears, our hands, our feet, and our mouth, that we would go in obedience to Christ and be challenged by this challenging text and be transformed by the work of your Spirit that points us back to Jesus and his saving gospel. Would you be merciful to us this morning? May I decrease so that you can increase. In the name of your Son, we pray. Amen. Be seated. Despite the ever-changing morals of our culture where it seems increasingly everything is okay except saying that not everything is okay. But nevertheless, we, we, we have a, a loosening of morality that's been going on for, for decades, perhaps even a century or more in our country. But, but surprisingly, there is one thing, Christian and non-Christian, tall and short, Democrat, Republican, all of us can, can agree on. And that is that anyone that would harm, victimize, or hurt children is among the worst people out there. In fact, consider uh, uh, recent court cases and trials and arrests that they get a lot of press and get a lot of attention, a lot of, a lot of anger from uh, the country, usually are centered around the, the hurt and the abandonment and abuse of children. And I think that's rightly so. We would say the worst people in the world were people who would do precisely that. Yet if we follow Jesus' arguments that you and I are like children entering the kingdom of heaven, should we not apply the same principle to each other? 
Remember what it is that we have here in chapter 18, right? Is, is, is the theme is children. So we saw last week in the first four verses that, that only children entered the kingdom of God, right? He, he made a big deal of that. You remember they're, they're bragging about who to man, right? I'm the man. No, no, no. I'm the man, right? And they go back and forth. Remember what Jesus is? He puts a child in his lap. He says, no, no, this is the one who enters the kingdom of God. And so in order to enter, we must become like children. And then what we see is the kingdom and the treatment of children, how you should treat children. Remember, this, it's a metaphor. The children are a metaphor. He's not talking about just how you should treat kids, but rather how we should treat one another. He also sees the kingdom of God and, and the care of the children in the kingdom of God and the discipline of children. We'll see, Lord willing, next week. And the forgiveness of children whenever they, they trespass. So this is the principle. We as children, and only by becoming children, can we enter the kingdom of God. And then how we treat one another is based on that metaphor of children. So let's start with this principle we see here in verses 5 and 6. The principle, verses 5 and 6. And and, and let us again remember that the context. Jesus is equating believers with being followers of Jesus. He begins with the simple argument that the key to entering the kingdom of God is to become like a child. We bring nothing to the table but our own dependence. We are depending on Jesus. And in the context is, again, these, these, these young teenage boys are bragging about uh, who is the greatest. And you should note why that is so important, given what Jesus says here. What are the disciples doing? They are provoking one another to sin. There is nothing holy that comes out of a conversation of whose daddy can beat up whose daddy, right? Or who is better than the other person. There is nothing nothing humbling about that. And because there's nothing humbling about that, there is nothing holy about that. So what Jesus has before his ministry, these are the guys who are going to change the world with the gospel, right? And, And he's saying, look, the first problem you have is lack of humility, You need to be like a child entering the kingdom of God. You must come with humility. You must come with dependence. And then he says, I got another problem here. You have a tendency to lead one another down a path of sin. Instead of encouraging one another, instead of building each other up, you're tearing each other down, diminishing their role in the kingdom. You are leading each other to sin. So you see what he says there in verse 5. Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. So again, this is connected with everything he said in first four verses. The least, this is the child, is now the greatest. The one who is humble like this child is great in God's kingdom. Likewise, the inverse is true. Those who think they are great like the disciples here are thus least in the kingdom of God. Now, now consider the implications here. He's saying that those in the kingdom of God, those who are regenerated children of God, saved by the blood of Jesus, are children in the kingdom of God. Consider the implications of that very simple yet profound point. The first thing is all followers of Jesus are likened to children. (laughs) First of all, that should make you laugh. Because let me tell you, as a pastor, it makes sense. Whether I'm home or dealing with church folk, there ain't a big difference, right? Let's be honest, right? The way my children stomp their foot and whine about everything is what we call a business meeting, (laughs) right? 
This is what we call with pastor cannot talk to you after the service, right? It's like, like, it's the same thing. Same attitude, same everything. But in this context, it should remind us that we enter the kingdom with humility and we live in the kingdom with humility. Notice that, that he doesn't say, well, you enter as a child and soon after that, you're a teenager. That would be worse. But then after that, you're a responsible adult in the kingdom of God and you never struggle with sin again. No, no, no. What does he say there? You're still a child. You're still a child, and as a child, you're still dependent. And as a child, you still you are you should be driven towards humility. And in this worldview, God becomes our Father, and we'll see the implications of that as as, as this passage goes on throughout the rest of this chapter. The second thing we need to see here is fellow believers who are in Christ are our siblings. It's right there in the text, isn't it? Isn't that the problem? You do not see yourself as children, first of all, so you're outside the kingdom. Secondly, you don't see each other as brothers and sisters in Christ, and so you war against one another. Now, I know you have siblings, more likely, and you fight to this day. doesn't matter how old you get. You're going to fight over something, and it's part of being siblings. But let's be honest. My and my brother can fight. You better not fight against them. Me and my sister can go at it. You better not mess with my sister, right? I know this because I used to ride a public school bus, right? <laughs> you know, right? My brother can get on the bus and he can say something nasty to me. And I, I would say, well, now my feelings are hurt. But, if, but on that same bus, on that same ride, someone else said something nasty about me. You're going to deal with it and vice versa, right? We understand this. Yes, we will pick on each other. Yes, there will be uh, problems. But as siblings, we love each other unconditionally. And our goal is for each other to be better, to grow together, to be stronger. Thus, in Christ, we are children of God. And this is true for all of us, despite our conversion story. Now, in this case, we need to know that we all have the same conversion story. Yes, maybe you're saying here that, well, yeah, but, but I grew up in the church and, and, you know, I'm not the worst person in the world. One of my favorite comedians back when he was funny, now he just does politics, but back when he was funny, um, he, he, he joked about how he wished he had a better conversion story. Maybe you're like this. He said, you know, we would bring people to church and they would have these great conversion testimonies, right? They were on drugs or, or they were womanizers and they, they, they were in jail and then Jesus got a hold of them and now here they are. And, and he's sitting in the pew, you know, as a fifth grader struggling with long division thinking this is as bad as it's ever going to get for me, right? You know, you know I, I don't have a story like that. But if we have a real theology of sin, we understand, we'll see a parable later, Lord willing, that, that illustrates this, that all of us need the same amount of grace. Despite our background, despite our needs, we all need the same amount of grace. Thus, how we treat each other is important. We are a family. And thus, God has the same attitude towards us as believers. He sees us as children. He sees us as brothers, as fellow brothers and sisters. I think John MacArthur is right. He summarizes this text when he says, how you treat Christians is exactly how you would treat Jesus Christ. I mean, think about it. Look, I'm a dad. If, if, if my two kids mistreat each other, that is an act of, of, of disrespect to me as their father because I love both of them equally. So, so, so why would I tolerate one of my children being abused, being harmed, being, being mistreated? I wouldn't. And in doing that, now you're, you're harming me. You're mistreating me. You're disrespecting 
me. So God cares deeply how Christians treat other Christians. In fact, he cares about it so much. Verse six is just hanging there, isn't it? It is right there. It's in your Bibles, despite the translation, even if you have the right translation. Verse six, it says, whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin. Remember, these are children. It would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and be drowned in the depth of the sea. Did you see what Jesus just said there? He says that person should be executed publicly. That's strong language. That's very strong language. And, and because he's wishing capital punishment on anyone, a fellow believer, who would cause another believer to sin. Now, that right there should cause us to pause, shouldn't it? This is very serious to Jesus. Now, the choice of punishment Jesus chooses here is, is quite fascinating. In the history of the West, drowning has been a, a, a very common form of execution. Uh, the, the best, I don't know if best is the right word, but, but a good example to use here is actually from the 16th century. Uh, you, you know Protestants and Catholics, right? they didn't get along. Well, then there's a third group called the Anabaptists that come out of the Protestant movement. Uh, we don't come from the Anabaptists, but theologically there, there's some connection there. The Anabaptists are called Anabaptists because it means rebaptizers. And the reason they practice rebaptism is because everyone in Europe at this time were baptized as children. So what they did is they stood up and said, I'm reading the Bible, and all these people are getting baptized as believers, as adults. There's a novelty. They read the Bible. And so they said, what we need to do is we need to be baptized in faith, not as children. So they baptized everyone. That's where they got the name Anabaptists, right? Rebaptizers. Well, both Protestants and Catholics who didn't get along, they all agreed that these Anabaptists weren't acceptable. So they punish them by drowning them. Oh, you like water so much. We'll poke some holes in a barrel and chuck you into the sea. This is how they executed them. Now we should note here in, in ancient world, Jews didn't practice drowning. They preferred stoning. I'll let you decide which one is more just and right, cruel and unusual whatnot. But the Romans did practice this. And so when Jesus describes a millstone, this is the sort of stone that only a donkey could, could, could use and whatnot because it's so heavy. There is no way for you to, to break from the millstone. It's, it's going to drown you. Uh, the image is, is quite striking. But, but what do we do with, with what he says here? There's a negative application and a positive application. The negative application is that Jesus is saying it would be better if we were dead than if we were causing fellow brothers and sisters in Christ, fellow children in the kingdom of God to sin. This is, again, striking and strong language. To violate the conscience of another brother, to pull them into sin, to diminish a fellow brother's fight against lust, to dishonor a sister's war against disobedience, to lead others away from Christ. This is evil, Jesus says here. So remember these words that Jesus says here when you pressure your date around to the next base. Remember these words from Jesus when you, you need that other drinking buddy. Remember these words when you victimize the weak or take advantage of the hurting. Remember these words when you proclaim a false gospel. Remember these words when you turn grace into a license to sin. Remember these words when you, when you confuse salvation with legalism or when you weaponize gossip, spread, spread lies uh, for the purpose of division, when we prioritize politics over prayer, legislation over love. You see, it is a lie from hell when we claim as Americans do, my choices, my actions, and my sin are private, and they will not affect anyone else in the world. 
That is a lie from hell. How can we look around the decay of Western society and not see how how our private sins, our personal choices, have a decaying effect on those around us, those we claim to love? How many more children must be victimized? How many more families must be broken? How many, many more generations of poverty and suicide and drug use and hopelessness will it take before we realize that sinning against one another is heinous in the eyes of God? Very strong language Jesus has here. But there's a positive application I think we can draw from this. Instead of abusing the children of God, can we not grow to bless the children of God in his kingdom? Just as every negative word Every false accusation and outburst of wrath from parents affects children. So too, how children, how church members carry themselves in worship, how they carry themselves in the world around them, affects others. What we say to each other, about each other, how we treat one another is not to be taken lightly. So instead of seducing each other to sin, let us lead others to righteousness. Therefore, you, dear child of God, dear brother and sister in Christ, be an example of love right here on Valentine's Day. Be open about your faith. Share with others what God has done for you and is doing in you. Reflect daily on the good news of the gospel. Give testimony of God's goodness. Worship with other believers. Grow in your faith. Encourage one another. Lead others to godliness. Therefore, what what Jesus is really getting at here, the, the overall principle I think should be clear. Can't you see? If humility was the key in verses 1 through 4, Holiness is the principle here in verse 5 and following. Holiness is the key. When we are humbled, then we will be holy. We wouldn't expect anything less from our own children, would we? All of us are uh, disappointed whenever we see open, rebellious, disobedient kids, right? And the parents don't do anything about it. And we understand that there's, there's, there's something good and right about Uh, about obedience and righteousness. And yet few of us, perhaps here this morning, take sin as seriously as Jesus wants us to. And to make matters worse, we want to drag other people in order to justify our disobedience. Well, it's not that bad. You you see what someone posted on Facebook the other day? (laughs) Boy, am I glad God didn't make me like them. Oh, come on. It's just a little bit. Come on, it's better when, 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 when two of us are engaged in this. Holiness begins with humility, but it will always involve a crucifying of the self. We must stop loving ourselves and start loving God and therefore to love others. It is then we will surrender sin for holiness and we will seek to take others with us towards greater holiness. Therefore, parents, be an example to godliness to your children. Students, be an example of godliness to other students. Brothers, sisters, be an example to one another of love and grace and mercy and righteousness. You see here, Jesus makes it clear that holiness is not an option for children of God. It is the character of children of God. Think about it. Chances are you've heard this phrase. Something like, I wonder where he or she gets that from. 
And it's usually not a compliment, right? <laughs> you know, you know that, 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 at least in my experience. Maybe you're opposite. In fact, uh, I was having lunch with my parents yesterday, and, and uh, uh, I was talking about how one of, one of our kids loves to draw. The other one loves to paint. They did not get either one of those from me. Now, I can draw, right? You know, I, I can draw. What I do is, is you probably saw on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, all that sort of stuff. I drew a picture of a beagle that, that my daughter watercolored, okay? This is what I did. I Googled. Beagle, because our beagle just passed away, so I'm going to draw a beagle. Beagle, draw easy, send. And I found the easiest beagle I could find. It was his, like, head up, because I ain't got time to draw a whole body. And, and the paws was only, like, this part of it. And, it's, and if you got the ears right, everything else came with it. So, so, so that, that's my ability to draw. But my wife, on the other hand, is an expert at drawing and painting. Few years ago, we had a drawing competition. It's it's like Kentucky trying to win a basketball game. Hey, speaking of Kentucky, their basketball team is bowl eligible. Everybody, all right, all right. No, okay, all right. It's a, Louisville's not gonna play the rest of the year. They're gonna be under COVID restrictions. So we got a winning record. You know, we were gonna go far in the tournament anyways because we're Louisville. Anyways. Um, uh, we had this drawing competition. I was really proud. I don't know. We were drawing a transformer or something. I don't know what it was. I was really proud of, of what I drew. And then I saw my wives. And I thought, well, this is a waste of my time. I already knew how this was going to go. No matter how good mine was, it was never going to compare to hers. So, so you, you look at her two kids. I'm thinking, I wonder where they get this from. Not from me. They get it from, from my bride. Right? So too it should be with the children of God. When we exercise love, Towards one another. Someone should be able to say, I wonder where they get that from. And we can say, I can tell you where it's from. It's from dad. It's from dad. And I hope it's a lot like my brother, Jesus, who became one of us to serve us at the cross. See, when we crucify our agenda, we will put on Christ. Crucify your expectations, your demands, and your sin, and put on Christ. Be holy, I believe we just say. Is God in heaven is holy. Well, that's the principle. Let us quickly move to the practice here. Here, the same principle remains, only it's applied more directly to the world, starting there in verse 7. Woe to the world for temptations of sin, for it is necessary that temptations come, but woe to the one by whom the temptation comes. Jesus is now condemning both believers and non-believers for its sin and how it affects others. And those who cause other people to sin are the least in the kingdom. We've seen this. And he says this, remember, in the context of 12 people who are following Jesus. He's saying, you guys right here who, who, who show up every Sunday, who, who hear every teaching I have, even during the week. You follow me on, on the Instagram. You are the least in the kingdom because you continue to lead other people down a path towards sin. You are the least. Now, notice what he says here in verse 8 and 9. It says, if your hand or your foot causes you to sin, cut it off, throw it away. It's better for you to enter life crippled or lame than two hands and two feet to be thrown to the turn of fire. If your eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. It's better for you to enter life with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into a hell of fire. Now, that's striking language again, isn't it? Now, answer this question for me. Is Jesus being literal? Is he? Bueller? Bueller? It's tough, isn't it? Now, let me say on the one hand, no. Because we have nowhere in Scripture where we have an example of Christians mutilating their bodies for the kingdom of God. 
I mean, there's weird people. Yes, but in terms of a consistent movement, this, 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 we don't see this, okay? We don't see it at, at all. Furthermore, we should note the Jewish pro, uh, prohibited mutilating the body, okay? So, so, so let me just say no, but let me also say yes, because let's be honest, we read this text and we immediately want to say, well, I don't need to take Jesus seriously there. It's a metaphor. It's just an example. It's an illustration. What he wants me to do is, is be a good boy. And in that moment, what we did is we justified what it takes to get away from sin. We've simplified how serious it is Jesus is taking this. So yes, let me just say, no, I don't want you to grab a hacksaw and say, I'm doing this for Jesus. But at the other end, some of you don't need to lose feet. What you need to do is you need to lose your internet connection. What you need to do is you need to surrender your phone. What you need to do is you need to surrender your attitude. Surrender your pride. Cut off for eternity the things that are leading you to sin. But because you've simplified this text, you do not take the real things you need to cut off, the real things you need to get rid of from your life. That's the problem when we come to this text. It's not whether or not Jesus is literal, but do we take him serious? Holiness is the priority of the Christian. And when we prioritize holiness, intimacy with the Savior, which is what we all crave, worship with other fellow believers, and missions to the nations become a reality. When we get holiness right, we stand before a holy God, redeemed by that holy God for holiness, everything else will, will come. Thus, holiness is required. But unfortunately, too few of us are fighting for that requirement. I love this quote from, from John Piper himself. He says, the, the, the only possible attitude toward out-of-control desire is a declaration of all-out war. I hear so many Christians murmuring about their imperfections and their failures, their addictions and their shortcomings. And I see so little war. Murmur, murmur, murmur. Why am I this way? Make war. Let me tell you, that is 90% of pastoral counseling. Preacher, I got a problem. Here, here's the answer. Give it to Jesus and fight. But two moments, no, 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 I really like my hand. I really, really like my eyes. I really, really like my feet. How can I be liberated and still cling to the thing that enslaves me? I think Piper is right. Make war. Holiness is, is worth it. And so in verses 10 to, 10 to 11, he returns to this principle, except now he connects it to humility and holiness, where he says, um, See that you do not despise one of these little ones, those humbled little ones. For I tell you that in heaven, their angels always see the face of my Father who is in heaven. Again, reminding us of humility. Disciples must look down uh, at the others to make themselves, what they think is they, they can look down at others to make themselves look great. This runs contrary to holiness. Don't do that, Jesus says. Exalt your brothers, encourage your brothers, and in that you will find exaltation. Humility feeds holiness, which will manifest itself in greater humility. And humility will conclude with exaltation. Let me quickly look here at the plan. We've seen the principle, we've seen the practice. Let us look at the plan. This is here in verses 12 through 14. Here, Jesus turns to a parable. Right, so all of that metaphor sets up the parable. And so you can't understand the parable without appreciating the metaphor. And here he's mixing, actually, his, his metaphors, uh, children and sheep. Now, this parable you're probably familiar with. It's the shepherd that goes, leaves the 99 to get the one. Lord willing, next week, next Sunday evening, we'll look at 
a very similar parable from Luke's pen, but they really have two, ap- two different applications. So you see it there starting in verse, verse 12. What do you think? If a man has a hundred sheep and one of them has gone astray, does he not leave the 99 on the mountains and go in search of the one that went astray? And if he finds it, truly I say to you, he rejoices over it more than, than, than over the 99 that never went astray. Now, this was a common problem in the agricultural world where sheep were everywhere. Uh, sheep have a tendency to stray, right? If you know anything about sheep, you know this is a problem. They get distracted, they are ignorant, and they just don't pay attention. No church I've ever been a member at would that accurately describe them, okay? I can't think of one. Maybe you've experienced that. I just can't think of any sheep in a congregation that may be led astray uh, by ignorance or anything else. I can't think of an example of that. Any church members being led astray. But what the shepherd says is, I have no other choice but to go get that one. This is the job of a shepherd. You've got to keep the sheep safe. And why does the shepherd do this? Because from the shepherd's perspective, that sheep is worth it. That sheep is worth the risk. The sheep, shepherd is risking his life for the good of that sheep. Now, when he finds the sheep, that's good news. His response is very typical. You're, you're going to celebrate. Now, now if you read, read, read this parable as a 21st century American that's never been outside, especially in COVID year, uh, you think, well, okay, I guess that's true. I don't know anything about sheep, right? I mean, I Googled it once. There's, there's, I used to play organ trails. Does that count, right? No, think of it this way. What if it were your child? This is the part that always bothered me because I, I think, okay, 99 versus one. Hang out with the 99. What if you lose one of them? What if the sheep that was led astray was one of your children? What would you risk to get that one child? Chances are you've had that moment at Walmarts, right? Where they were right behind you. Now they're not right behind you. And you're hoping it's because of the rapture. Because you are in panic mode. Panic mode. It wasn't too long ago we were in the library. And we were in the, the, the used bookstore. I love that our library, you can buy anyways. Um, but we were in the used bookstore. And I love used bookstores. And I turned around and one of the kids was missing. And I'm thinking, okay, close the door. There's only one way out. Right? And then the other one ended up missing. Because I said, have you seen your sibling? No. What did that sibling go do? Go find their sibling. Now I'm missing two kids. Man, it would never let me live this down, right? Now, it's a small contained area. It wasn't too But that initial response is always panic. Now, imagine if you did lose that child. And that child is found. Maybe the other in a Walmart. Maybe the other in the country. But you find that child. How would you respond? You're going to celebrate. You're going to cry tears of joy. So it is with the Father. Why does this matter so much? Because it is a call to repentance. Maybe you this morning are one of these children. Maybe you are this morning one of these sheep and the shepherd is pursuing you. Maybe you're one of those who, who maybe you have been led astray. Maybe you're the one leading others to stray. The shepherd in grace is calling you, leaving everything for you. Because that is love. And let this be a sort of church that will not, seek, uh, will not stop seeking out such sheep, 
will not stop pursuing in grace those who need it. And let us be a church. We are geared around building one another up instead of destroying one another down. And together, as humbled children of God, pursue the holiness of Christ. A few weeks ago, I read a book about, called The Tech, Tech Wise Family. I'm sure you can guess why I would read that. It's actually a quite helpful book. You can read it for yourself. You can have my copy, see all my goofy notes and whatnot. But there's something that stuck out to me. He makes a point about what, what technology has done to, to the family, right? In, in, in that, you think about it, it used to be you had bullies in school and on the bus, right? But what did you do? You were an adolescent, you had big feet and a squeaky voice. Not that that ever happened to me. I sounded like Johnny Cash in the morning, and I sounded like uh, Sandy Patty by afternoon, right? She had a high, she had a high pitched voice. I don't know. Anyways, she didn't sound like Johnny Cash, I can tell you that. So, so when I was dating my wife, she loved the Johnny Cash. The lady at the drive-thru window didn't like my Sandy Patty because she kept saying, that'd be 240, ma'am, right? I did those adolescence, right? Now, we're all awkward in adolescence, but when you came home, you left all that school stuff at school, right? The bullies and the mean guy, right? Because home was a safe place. What technology has done is, is now you've brought all of that with you into the home. That's one of the points he's making. So he makes the point, he says, the home gives us two things simultaneously we need to grow up to be responsible, uh, well-rounded adults. We, you, need, you need these two things in the home. Number one, you need to know you are a fool. Okay? You need to know this is why God gives us brothers and sisters. They're going to make fun of what it is you're wearing every morning. They're going to make fun of how you mispronounce every word that comes out of your mouth. They're going to make fun of your big feet. They're going to make fun of your ugly nose. They're going to make fun of how you act. Right? That is the job of a brother and sister, and it is God-given. But you need to know you're messed up and you're broken. You're a fool. Second thing you need to know in that same family simultaneously is you're loved. You're loved. Think about it. Right now, your spouse could destroy your reputation. Right now, your children could destroy everything about you. Your parents could destroy everything about you. Because they know just how broken you are. But they won't. Because they love you. Isn't that beautiful? It's almost as if this was God's plan from the very beginning. That in the home, we are free to be broken and we are encouraged with love. It sounds like the church, shouldn't it? Doesn't it sound like the church? I hope so. In this church, are you free to be broken? Because you are. But in that brokenness, are you loved? And are you loved through the brokenness? Are you loved out of the brokenness? Dear children, is that true of us? And if not, why not?